You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. On today's episode, we are joined by Carmen Vichon, who is a master's level therapist, a professional counselor, a performance coach, and she specializes in a modality called EMDR. And this sort of therapeutic modality is both used to process trauma in addition to cracking the code for optimal performance. On this episode, we go through lots of cool topics that I would love for you guys to think how this applies to you. What sort of trauma have you experienced in your life and how is that holding you back? For those of you that are unaware, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it basically goes through a sort of standard talk therapy approach, but also includes tracing fingers in front of your face with your eyes, with your head still, tracing it back and forth. And what that does is it basically reprograms uh, what's happening in the brain. So we talk in, we talk about the different parts of the brain, how they work, how it helps with us dealing with trauma. And we also talk a lot about performance. Like what is the psychology of performance? What did we experience in our childhood that made us want to compensate for optimal performance? You know, the sort of overachiever type who had sort of an upbringing that may or may not have been sort of challenging for them. So we talk about connecting childhood trauma with this high level of performance. And we think about this also with uh, professional athletes. It's a really appropriate way to think about it. We also talk about parenting and how we can parent for optimal performance. Um, she and I are both parents. And I think now there's a lot of parents out there thinking about how to help encourage their children. And we talk about the importance of honesty when we deal with our children and how they perform and, and um sort of uncoddling uh, in, a, in a certain way. We also talk about how we can turn fear into performance and what that process looks like. How can we get the most from something that's been challenging in our life? This is a really fascinating episode that we dive into the mental aspects of how we can live our best lives. And I really hope that you enjoy it. I hope that you enjoy all of these. It's my goal, as always, to give you cutting-edge guests with, that I think are really innovative thinkers, some big names, some people you haven't heard of, as a way to bring all of this together in a way that we can glean one or two things that we can take with us from each of these podcasts so that we can live more optimally and happier and more fulfilling lives. If you dig this content, please, please share, subscribe. It really helps our numbers. We really appreciate that. If you're interested in learning more about my coaching approach, go to seanmccormick.com. Thank you so much for listening. It is my only goal to bring you cool stuff every single week. And so keep listening, share this with your friends. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Carmen Vishan. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Carmen Vichon, who is a performance consultant and psychotherapist. Carmen, 
welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. So pleased to be here, finally. I'm really excited to, to learn a lot this episode because I myself have never really taken part in any sort of psychotherapy or counseling at any real committed long-term level. But as a coach, I understand how critical it is for so many people and how effective it is. Um, so I'm excited because I, I know that I'm, I'm going to learn a lot, which means that other, per, other people learn a lot too. Yep. Hopefully. <laughs> right. We'll see. I'll do my so best. Can you just, just give us sort of an overview of who your clientele are and the work that you do as a performance consultant and also as a psychotherapist? So that's a really interesting question, and we're going to bifurcate from the very beginning because um, as a result of my adding the performance consulting piece about a year and a half ago, um, my psychotherapy clients have also changed. And what I mean by that is that um, the, you know, the stereotypical, when you think of the stereotypical client who goes to talk to a shrink, whatever you know, discipline, psychiatrist, psychologist, um, they are, these are people who are suffering, um, and who want alleviation from that suffering. And so these are not necessarily, you know, high or low functioning people. They're just really suffering and they're struggling. So that's how we would characterize them. On the other hand, someone who seeks the services of someone of like, you know, optimal performance, um, peak performance, I want to reach that flow. Um, can you talk to me about mental skills for being in the zone? Um, that's a different kind of a person. That's a, that's a much more actualized person. That's for sure a high functioning person. So when I added the performance piece, I noticed that I was triaging my therapy clients differently as well. So who I work with in therapy now much more resembles people who are looking for optimal performance work. So, um, the narrative of my therapy client right now goes something like this. I know that there is something in my past that is showing up in present day and it's bothering me. It shows up symptomatically with irritability, um, loss of focus or sense of purpose. Um, and they're driven. They're not coming in with an attitude of suffering. They're coming in with a well-defined purpose. So it's almost like I'm working with both populations from a much different starting point. One of we're going towards optimal functioning. We're not going to spend so much time in the suffering place. Yeah, it does. It does, does that make sense? Do most people know the sources of their suffering? Uh, I would say no. I would say no, you know, and that stands to reason because even me as a trained therapist, and I've been doing this for a while, for sure I have blind spots and it takes other, even non-trained, non-clinical people to show me, Hey, you show up like this. Do you realize that you're doing this over and over again? Right? So mm -hmm. no, I don't think that we do. And I think that that's like, you know, that's the Holy grail. I mean, you know, the ancient Greeks had it as one of their aphorisms, know yourself, which must mean that that's, that's a pretty high value. And that's like a life's yes, purpose. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, right? once you do know yourself deep more and more deeply as you age, you, 
you can you can head off catastrophe before it begins. <laughs> you know, you can gotcha. you can avoid uh, the pitfalls and mistakes that you that you in your younger life may have made because you've done the work. It's just what work are you doing? You know, um, th- that begs the question. Good uh, and and uh, and one of the yeah. one of the things that that I know you that you, one modality that I know that you work within is EMDR, and it fascinates mm-hmm. me. I've read a ton about it. I know that that's that that's something that you have been very very effective with. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the origins of of this modality? It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. So there was this woman. She's she's still around. Her name is Francine Shapiro. She was down in California working on a doctorate in comparative literature, I want to say. And, you know, during one of her breaks from her studies, she was walking by herself on a beach. And she was thinking about a childhood memory, um, an event that happened between her and her mom. And as she's walking down the beach, thinking about this incident, um, she um, she keeps walking and walking and turning it over in her mind. And at the end of her, you know, contemplative walk, she realizes that her emotional distress regarding this incident has lessened. And she starts, you know, this like process of inquiry within about herself. And she also realized that while she was walking, not only was her body moving bilaterally, just walking, right? Um, her eyes had also start where they were moving back and forth rapidly from left to right. So she's ponderously like her body is moving. She's walking on the sand and her eyes are moving left and right. And she notices at the end of the walk, her emotional distress has lessened. So she got curious. She went back to her dorm room, to her whatever, her apartment, and she started trying out something with her friends. So she asked her friends, hey, can you come up with something that's disturbing you from childhood? Like, come up with an event that still sticks with you. Like, what do you remember? And so she tested this. She did, I can't remember what, how it was that she got them to, um, she essentially stimulated both hemispheres simultaneously to cross, you know, that like ossified body, the corpus callosum between that connects the two hemispheres. And so as they're thinking of the memory, she starts waving her fingers back and forth. You know, um, it worked. It worked. She was fascinated. She became fascinated. Within a year, she switched her major to clinical, to research psychology, I believe. And then she started testing this modality and she refined it. She developed it. And now it's been around for 30 years. So it totally changed her life. Um, The first populations that she tried it with clinically were uh, war veterans and sexual abuse survivors. Worked fantastically, fantastically, powerfully, quickly. That is the background. And so this modality, Sean, has been, is the most researched and the most validated of all the psychotherapeutic modalities. And even though... You know, like anecdotally, we know that it's not the framework of therapy. It's the relationship between therapist and client that produces the change. It's the fit. It's the chemistry. Still, however, this is such a powerful mechanism for change that, you know, it can't be overlooked. And it's been quantified. 
like the Veterans Administration, the Department of Defense, um, insurance companies are actually seeing like treating trauma with EMDR produces much faster, deeper, longer lasting results than other other how, modalities. How is it that a 30 year old modality has become the most researched? It's interesting. I kind of want to, I think that's a good question also. I think um, two things happened in the last 20 to 30 years. I think trauma has become more commonplace as a word, you know, in the general public. We've become a lot more aware of what trauma is and how pervasive it is. And I also think that the explosion in brain research, right, the imagery, the techniques, the curiosity, just, I mean, we're really going down the rabbit hole and putting electrodes and seeing brain activity. And we're able to get just metrics. Here's the change. Here's the before and after. Here's the traumatized brain. Here's the developing brain. Here's how it functions after EMDR. Here's how it functions after psychodynamic, humanistic, whatever, right? So we're seeing, we're getting a lot more information. I think it's as a result of other avenues of research that they still are running EMDR through this. Well, what happens if we measure it with this? I think it's because of the of the advances wow. in brain research. And also just us becoming more comfortable with that really Do odious we know word, trauma. Do much about this, the actual science behind it? Do we know wh why... I mean, what, what is it? Does the brain go blue or red or like, you know, like what do we, do we, do we know for sure? No, no. And we want to, and we continue to look at why, what is it that changes? So, um, we know for sure that after effective trauma treatment with EMDR brain activity, so different areas of the brain light up. So let's just um, look at the brain for a second. And I'm going to use um, Dan Siegel's terminology because it's so accurate and so simple. So he talks about um, <clears throat> the bottom brain and the top brain, lower and upper. And then he also talks about um, inside and out and left and right. Right. So it's all directions. So, <clears throat> right. So brain development really starts in utero. And it starts developing from the bottom up and from the inside out with the right with the cerebral cortex, the executive functioning developing last and wiring itself last, which is why developmentally we need to wait for kids to turn 18 to 21 before we diagnose them with really big deal things like bipolar or whatever, because they're still going through that developmental growth brain development. Um, so if the brain develops from the inside out and the bottom up, it means that the primitive brain, the cerebellum, which controls autonomous functions like heart rate and breathing, that develops first. But then the limbic system, which is the place of big emotions, develops next, and that's pre-verbal. That's old stuff. That's big, big, big emotions, right? And so we really are like instinctive, primitive beasts at the core and only then do we learn, hopefully, life gives us good parents, good situations, and a good environment to learn how to manage that limbic system, that really deep emotional brain.
so what's the mechanism? Like, why do certain areas light up? All right, so let's go back to that, you know, what develops. So in trauma, all trauma, regardless of at what age it happens, is considered preverbal. Here's why. It gets locked into memory neuronal networks. It gets locked, and then it gets put away for our own safekeeping. Because if we're constantly like activated by a trauma that happened a year ago or 10 years ago, we wouldn't be able to function. So one place where it gets deeply locked is in the limbic system. So the traumatized brain, when trauma is somehow triggering it or it's activated, when there's a trigger, when there's something, a feeling, something, that limbic system just fires. It fires. And the brain waves are very rapid, right? So with a traumatized brain, brain wave activity looks looks very active. It's always very engaged. It's um, um, you know, people who work in other healing modalities talk about heart rate variability. Well, trauma wow. people also look at that, right? So one thing that we look at is, you know, the resting heart rate should be nice and low, and the active heart rate should be increased with traumatized people mm. it's the other way so if somebody has experienced significant trauma when they're at rest and life is calm they're huh. activated they're not at rest they're switched and when there is a lot of chaos and frenetic energy because the brain has developed in a traumatic environment right they're at rest because what their brain recognizes so Going back to do we know how it works, we're still looking at it. Um, the closest that we've come to it is that the reason why the EM, the bilateral stimulation, what it mimics is it mimics um, the rapid eye movement in REM sleep, which is when we process right. what we need to process. It mimics it. So in it. REM sleep, our eyes literally go left to right? Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, that... Rap right. Rapidly. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's in the name there, right? Got to be, got to, got to be part of it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Within the limbic system, how far does the corpus callosum go through the limbic system as well? Is the limbic system or no? It sits below, right? No. Okay. Interesting. Yes. I'm just thinking about the anatomy of the brain and, and how you know by going left to right, yeah, associating that back and forth, yeah. Right. You're right. But, but, but this is another thing. Like, so there are separate structures of the brain, but also the brain functions beautifully as a whole. So even though the corpus callosum is not really, it has no like physical connection to the limbic system. Um, the whole brain is like, it's like a, it's like a walnut, right? Like, so when you separate the filaments, um, you you still you still have neuronal connections that are neurons are you know they're running from left to right up and down all over just because certain structures are not are not connected but the interesting thing that has been explained to me and I love this languaging is that when you so the triggered chaotic brain lives in the limbic system. That's anxiety, that's hyperventilation, that's trauma. It lives in the limbic system. The calm, rational brain lives in the cerebral cortex. When you cultivate relaxation, you're cultivating the calm brain. When you do that, you're actually strengthening 
you're, you're making neurons talk to each other. The neurons that fire together, wire together. So you're strengthening the cerebral cortex and tamping down over time on the chaotic limbic system. Wow. So producing right. physical change. When you meditate, when you pray, when you're relaxed, when you're embodied, when you're present. Is that a you're part changing of the, your the brain. aim in, in most um, you know, clinical um, settings? Is that, is that part of it to um, give people tools and walk them into places where they can be calm, where they can find calm to create that calm? Is that, a, is that a, from, a, from a brain chemistry perspective, is that part of it? Or am I ma making a connection where there's one? No, I would think I would think that that there is. I would think that all therapy has that as one of its goals to 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 give people tools to feel grounded, to feel you know self-efficacious and control, to be able to predict, to stay present. I'm not sure that they would talk with clients about the brain in this way. This is what your brain is right. doing when you do yeah. this, right? It just I think it depends on right. what they're interested in. Yeah. You know, but I think that for sure that's one of the goals um, is grounding, right? Somebody comes to a shrink or to any healer, oh my God, wringing their hands. They hope to walk out with something ameliorative, yeah. right? I feel better now. I feel yeah. more stable. Can you walk us through kind of a typical EMDR session? Okay, I'm gonna use a really simple example. So about four years ago, I worked with a woman in her late 70s. And I worked with her for what to me is a short time working with someone um, in therapy. I think I worked with her for about six months. And however, the reason why we worked such a brief uh, time together is because you know, she was close to 80. She had two masters, one in theology and one in counseling psychology. And she had done a lot of introspective work throughout her life. So, and she came to me just for EMDR. Um, and she was just a beautiful individual. And so one, one, um, Here's one that was typical for her, but I mean, she was so primed for this. She had just done so much, you know, upfront work. Um, so within less than a 50 minute session, we cleared um, an old childhood memory for her between her and her dad, where her dad would, he was um, an Air Force pilot, very intelligent man, but very like mercurial. Uh, fly off the handle. Her mom was a typical stay-at-home wife, but very intelligent. So mom was unhappy because she wasn't really maximizing her full potential, no matter. So um, it was my client's maybe fifth or seventh birthday. And um, the tradition was that they would go up in the air. Dad would take, would take her up in a plane on her birthday for a flight. And she had she was by this by the time she was five or seven i can't remember the age she started getting learning to be nervous when her dad comes home when she has to spend time with her dad because she never knows what she's going to get and sure enough they get in the car and he becomes enraged and she's trapped in the car because of her age because it's her birthday she can't disappoint her dad she can't you know get out of the car 
So we're working on this memory, Sean, and within about, um, the, the process goes like this. I ask a sequence of scripted questions. Give me a specific memory. Tell me how old you were. Um, what is the worst part or, or the most, the, what image comes up in your mind about that memory? Um, what is the negative belief about yourself that's connected with that memory? It's a negative cognition and those negative cognitions are imprinted in our neurons, in our circuitry. I'm not safe. I'm not loved. Um, I don't deserve good things, right? Um, so what's the negative self-belief? Um, what would you rather believe instead when you think about this memory? So going like setting up the stage for the future template. Okay, we've worked with this past traumatic memory. We want to get you to an adaptive place. I am safe. I was a small child. Um, you know, something good in the future. Um, what emotions come up for you now as you think of this memory? Where do you feel those emotions in your body? And on a scale of zero to 10, zero is no disturbance, 10 is highest. How disturbing is this memory for you today? So I get all that information. I link three pieces together. The worst part of the memory, the negative self-belief, and where the emotion lives in the body. And then I start bilateral stimulation rapidly. And every 30 seconds or so, I stop and check in with the client. What comes up? There's a little script that comes up before I even start and I say, don't censor anything, don't hold anything back. Even if your mind wanders, just give me the feedback. What comes up? What do you get now? Sometimes people say, I can't concentrate. I'm thinking about work. I got into a fight with my husband. Okay, just give me that information and we go with it. We go and, with and it and we go that, with that it. I can't see the lateral stimulation is is basic is, you know, waving uh, two fingers back and forth you know, a foot away from someone, maybe two feet away from someone's uh, uh, face and, and they're tracking with it. Okay, keep going, sorry. You're tra that's right, that's right. You're tracking with your eyes, not your head, and it's at a comfortable distance. Um, and if something really distressing comes up, um, you don't want the client to be flooded with emotion. So we build in a stop signal, usually like a hand motioning up, we need to stop here. But that's never happened so far. Um, I, I give support and I encourage to continue processing so that we can move beyond the stuckness to something much more adaptive to resolve it. Um, so there are certain indicators that um, that the event, the traumatic event has processed. One of those indicators is if the same information comes up repeatedly twice. When I ask what comes up now, what are you noticing? I'm not noticing anything. Or I'm, no I'm noticing that my father didn't know how to handle his emotions. And it's too bad for me, but that was a really mm. long time ago. If this keeps coming up, then I'll check in on how disturbing it is. I'll give that scale again. Let's look at those numbers again. So it's really operationalized. It's been studied so much. They've just really figured out what is the script. What, how do you get the numbers to check in where is the person? Are you ready to move to the next phase? Um, 
what the so after the trauma has shifted adaptively meaning i'm in the present now and that happened 40 years ago i'm okay now and i understand my father i can forgive him i'm okay because i'm still alive i'm very powerful and he was just um very unhappy with his life right like that's resolution that's adaptive processing then we shift to um we shift to uh, what's called a future template all right let's take the memory and link it with that positive cognition that we front loaded what would you rather believe when you think of this memory what would you rather believe about yourself i would rather believe that i am safe and that i am loved all right how true does that feel again there's a measured scale from one to seven one is not at all how true does that feel it feels like a three so then we we do the same linkage hold that positive cognition that positive belief about yourself along with the worst part of the memory hold those two pieces together and follow my fingers huh. with your eyes and that's called installing a positive resource sure. a future template i'm now i'm loved when that when that positive belief has been installed to a seven, to the maximum number, then we shift to the body. We'll do a body scan. All right. Take throughout all this, I should say, always there's a deep breath. So between all of the, all of these, you know, follow my fingers with your eyes before I say what comes up for you, I will center the client and say, I'd like you to inhale deeply and exhale slowly and then i elicit that information the breath the final piece is please do a body scan if you need to close your eyes we're in a safe place um and just check in with your body from the top of your head slowly just scan your body all the way to the tips of your toes and notice if there's any sensation that's disturbing that and if so let's look at that and we even process that sensation with emdr let's go with that where do you feel it what do you feel fascinating because it, it, it's still it's 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 therapy you know it's you're still you're still going back to a place to to going going to the place like feeling those feelings understanding them changing them on purpose with a goal but then to to not only use the the just for the sake of people listening and not watching the the the, the finger movement in uh, back and forth where you follow it with your eyes the the lateral stimulation to do that um, on the going there and also to do that on the resolving that and then to do it again on the figuring out where it is in your body and getting and working through that that that's really interesting it's not it doesn't hinge on okay, you feel something bad, let's, let's wipe it away. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like let's, let's really process this. And part of the processing of this in the mind, in the body is, is through that, that, that lateral stimulation. That's right. That's exactly right. You're not, you're not wiping it clean. You're not pushing it off the radar. You're facilitating the processing of that information from 
where it's maladaptively stored to adaptive processing. What that means is that, okay, you're an adult and you come to a therapist who does EMDR. As an adult, we're making some assumptions about you. You can function. There's some functionality, yeah. right? <laughs> so yeah. that must mean that you, you have picked up some adaptive mechanisms. You've had some adaptive life experiences. With EMDR, we want to link maladaptive to adaptive. We want to link the I'm not safe to those situations where you have felt safe, safe enough so that you can go have a job. It doesn't matter what the job is, but the fact that you're still alive as an adult means that you must have had some adaptive experiences. We want to link trauma mm. with adaptation, right? So this is a movement. It's almost like it's, it's a, it's a visceral movement, Sean. It's, it's, you're connecting different neurons. You're actually facilitating the process of different neurons connecting and talking with each other. Wow. That's what you're doing. That's why it's neurobiology. That is, that, that's, that's really fascinating. That's really amazing. You know, the thing that you said, the breakthrough comment of, for processing this, right. And, and for, and for this example, you know, yeah, my dad, uh, was an unhappy person that couldn't handle his emotions effectively. And that is a bummer that that happened to me, but it was 65 years ago. Like that, that, that's the obvious healthy way to look at that situation. And, and it is so hard for so many of us to get to that perspective, to really think about it in a healthy way. And this is like, a fight you had with your with your significant other, being frustrated with your children, uh, being upset with your boss, all of these sorts of things, when we let people get to us and it screws with our brain, um, to get to that point where it's like, oh, that person was having a bad day. Oh, you know, uh, Jim from accounting, um, I'm not a bad person. Jim from accounting is just having a really hard day and he doesn't sleep very well and he snapped and it's not my fault. I'm not going to let it ruin my day. Like it's so, it's so hard to get to that place and to, to take that to a very traumatic experience that someone's, that someone has had, um, must be really fulfilling work that you do. It must be. It is. Yeah. I get to be able to help it. people. It's phenomenal. <laughs> so I want yeah. to um, one one question that I that I think is important, and this is not a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what what is trauma? How, how how do what is trauma? I love that question. Okay, I'm going to read a really clinical definition from my favorite trauma expert, Bessel van der Kolk. He's trained as a psychiatrist, but he's, um, he's on the East Coast, spent time at great, great places. Anyway, he says, and he's in the EMDR camp, and he's also in the yoga and somatic therapy. You have to implicate the body if you're going to resolve trauma. You have to do body work. And he goes so far as to say all healing practitioners who are successful have their own body discipline, body work that they do. Anyway, 
his clinical definition is traumatization is a disruption of the inherent information processing system that normally leads to integration and adaptive resolution following upsetting experiences. So it's a disruption of something that we already have within us. It disrupts a normally occurring process because the brain shuts down. When trauma occurs, the brain shuts down and regresses. It locks in the trauma, stores it maladaptively, puts it away, it compartmentalizes it. A very beautiful and humanistic definition of trauma that I love is from one of the earliest attachment theorists, D.W. Winnicott. He was British and um, he was in the 1950s. So he was part of the first group of people who were looking at the importance of attachment, secure, insecure, anxious, ambivalent, um, what that looks like. Um, he says, trauma is not necessarily just big bad things that happen to people in childhood. Trauma is also good things that don't happen oh. that should. So trauma is two things. Trauma is things that happen that shouldn't and things that should happen can that you, don't. Yeah, can you think of an example? Can you think of an example of, of of something good that should have happened that didn't? Postpartum depression, very common, right. I think. What that means is that mom is emotionally absent. I'm assuming the stereotypical, you know, family structure, right? Mom, dad and kids, whoever it is, primary caregiver. But postpartum depression is a biological fact. Right. So if during infancy and immediately after birth and during the first seven formative developmental years when attachment, secure attachment is supposed to happen, one or both parents are emotionally unavailable for whatever reason. They're struggling with finances. They're struggling with substance abuse. They're struggling with, um, uh, you know, just their own demons, their own dysfunctions. That means that they're unemotionally, like they're not available to be attuned to the child. That child needs to bond securely. And what secure bonding is in that first seven is consistent. It's consistent. And it's a very slow, organic process where the parent sees the child and reflects the child back to himself or herself, which develops mm. the sense of self wow. and the ego so trauma there's many different ways to look at trauma another useful way to look at it is capital T trauma and little t trauma capital T is car accident apparent suicides overt ongoing abuse in childhood either domestic violence or the child himself is being abused whatever that's capital T trauma. Little t trauma is all of those small instances that add up where mom and dad are not emotionally, psychologically there to see me, to acknowledge me, to facilitate my understanding of myself and my place in the world. Wow. That's little t trauma. And so with that definition, 
I bet we can filter over 99% of the world's right. population through that. I've never heard it explained that way, and, and it makes tons of sense. You know, uh, If you're not being given what, you're, what you need to develop your sense of self, that's traumatic for sure. You know, you're, you're lacking a certain something that you really, really needed. Yeah. That, that, that helps me understand trauma because, um, you know, um, it, you never know, you never know what can be, what is traumatic for somebody and what isn't. And, and I think, I think that, um, that you don't know if someone is dealing with something cause they might be dealing with it quietly and what seem, what seems like frivolous or sort of, um, marginally important for someone, um, based on somebody other some somebody else's psychological makeup could be drastically affecting yeah. their life you know very interesting um you also i'm gonna add one more piece to this because it's really important to add um it's it piggybacks on what you just said what to somebody might be um really significant to another person looks frivolous and one of the important pieces of that is hardwiring, right? So this takes us to that, you know, seminal question, which has, has been disputed. Is it nature and nurture? It's both. It's how you're born, how you come into the world hardwired. Do you have a more sensitive central nervous system? If so, you're going to be in a different category of people where life is going to impact you a lot right. more powerfully, right? Somebody who is just more robust, born that way how does how life interacts with both of these people is going to evolve into different looking different functioning people yeah yeah i totally see that fascinating it's so fascinating uh, you know i had some other questions about um um you know the definition of exposure therapy you know and i and 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 i and i kind of want to skip that stuff because we've we've done a really good deep dive into the heavy and the and and what it's based, but you know, I also want to talk about performance. I also want to know how how we can what you do um, to help people uh, perform at a high level. And one thing that we in our in our just our brief conversation before we turned the microphone on was the link between trauma and high performance. And and that I I like how I like the potential for that. And I would love for you to give me your thoughts on how you think um, big tra uh, trauma and high performance are linked. Okay. I've been thinking a lot about this connection, I would say, for the past year and a half, really. I'm the kind of person that doesn't do anything unless I understand it really well. And I feel, I feel as if it aligns with me. So I'm not gonna research something that I feel no connection to. I have always been interested in people's felt perception of life, but also, okay, so into that you read suffering, but I've also always been fascinated by people who are really good at what they do, regardless of what it is that they do. Ever since I was little, I remember my attention being captured by people who are masters at what they do just right whether they're academics or they work with their hands or they are farmers and they have a gorgeous harvest at the end of the season what they do how they process that 
like that sort of like human endeavor to be, you know, at the top of your game, something magical happens there. So, all right. So I'm, 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 I'm doing therapy for a while and I'm realizing that I want to grow in some way, but I don't know how. And so my kid starts playing hockey and he's got this natural aptitude for being a goaltender in hockey. It emerges shortly after he starts playing. Like he's really got it. Like it's something, and I've heard of this, right? It's like, whatever, like kinesthetic intelligence or like it's hardwiring, it's whatever. So I just watch more and more. And as a result of being in that world for a couple of years, I see a lot of really good hockey players. And that passion of mine, that curiosity about people who are really good at what they do becomes activated again. So then I start asking what, like asking myself, what do I need to be doing professionally? Who are these people? I want to work with these people who love what they do. And it's that nexus. They're really good at what they do and they love what they do, right? It's where the X, where it crosses. That's the intersection where I want to be at. However, before all of this even started, during my EMDR training, the way that EMDR was and is presented is that it's used with two populations. It's used for trauma primarily, and it's used for performance work. So I shelved the performance work because I'm a therapist and I want to facilitate, you know, the ease of suffering. But now that a couple of things are happening personally in my life, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember EMDR and performance work. So I start looking into performance. What is this? What should I be doing? So what I found or, or what my, my um, eye was um, captivated by were articles, um, usually in business journals, about how to manage high flyers how to how to inter, how to recruit for the right person for the right position and how to stimulate how to motivate that person to become a team player and to keep showing up at their best consistently so this took me into sports psychology yeah right love it and about this because um okay the game is in the head right um it's up here what does that mean after you've worked for so long at something that you love, that next thing that puts you in a different range, in a different category, the elite performer is really mental skills. And so it's, it's sports psychology, which then gave birth to performance psychology. But going back to trauma, the theory goes like this that I've seen. I've heard Michael Gervais allude to it in one of his podcasts I believe it. I want to see some more more data on this. However, interestingly, I don't know if you remember this. Amy Chua wrote this really outrageous book a few years ago, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. Everybody was very angry with her. She has since done some other really interesting work. And she looked at um, groups of cultures, migrant groups to the United States who become very successful. What characterizes those groups, cultural groups that become really successful in the United States? They have three characteristics in common. They have a sense of their own superiority, which has been inculcated in them from their parents. You are better than. They have, they're insecure. 
they're never good enough. So they keep striving. So they surpass themselves. So they function from a sense of inferiority, ongoing inferiority, but coupled with a sense of superiority and they're tremendously disciplined. So even she is imbuing her languaging, her findings are looking at, hey, somebody feels inferior, therefore they're going to overcome that with superior achievement. Now, where performance work comes in is how do you sustain this continued superior performance? Because people choke, people have performance anxiety, people get injured, right? So to wrap it up, we come from a place of less than, that's the trauma. In order to adaptively overcome that and function, we overshoot, we overcompensate. This puts us at a really good higher level because we're combining it with something that we're intrinsically hardwired to be good at and that we've practiced for a long time. It, it sounds like every star athlete you've ever met, you know, um, um, like, you know, how many football players had hard childhoods? Um, how many, um, you know, yeah. I mean, how many, uh, you know, gifted actors and actresses had weird parents and, um, felt like they were never enough for sure. And that, and that, and that would be little T trauma having an implication on their drive to prove themselves and overcompensate and achieve. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense of sense to me. Is that, is it, is that, is that area of consideration not very well studied? I don't, I, I think so. I, th I don't think it is very well studied. I, I don't think so. I don't know about you, but I think that performance work is going to boom in the next, you know, five years. And I'm seeing it just become more part of the public space. Right. And I think we're still like poised for instant gratification. So whatever becomes more and more popular, more and more talked about, um, I think people just want to go for it. Yeah, they just want right. to grab it. Right. Yes. Who cares how or why I want that. I don't know who's doing the work to study. Is there a statistical significance between early childhood or childhood trauma and overachievers? Yeah. Stellar. I went to a. I have some friends that play professional soccer that play play in the MLS, and I went to went to a game, uh, the first game of this season this year for the Seattle Sounders, and I was hanging out with some of the uh, former Sounders players. Uh, before the game as part of some like special events and I was hanging out with them and chit-chatting and one of the guys who's a retired um, retired now works with uh, works with children and parent uh, child athletes and parents and we were sitting there talking and I said you know his name's Pat Ioni and I, I should have him on the podcast because this is exactly what we're talking about I was like what are you up to these days and he's like well you know uh, and he had it he was ready to tell me um, he's like I work with children who are athletes and their parents, uh, and my goal is to is to help parents um, be better with gifted young athletes. And I was like, "Whoa, that is niche, brother!" And <laughs> and and he and he goes, "Every person in this room, for sure, has some sort of issue." 
and it has found a way to express itself on the soccer field. He goes, and and all of us are head cases in one way, shape, or form, and all of us had pressures from our parents. All of us had this unreasonable expectation that drove us to to perform at a very high level. And for most of us, it started when we were five or six years old. And I was like, wow. And 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 he was so passionate about it. He was so clear on it. He's like, every if you're a pro athlete, you're messed up. Like you 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 there. Everybody is has a chip on their shoulder, and. And I was like, I mean, it makes it makes sense to me. And then I'm thinking of all all of the athletes that I know, you know, and I know football players and soccer players, and and all of them who have you know have who have had an opportunity to speak with in a deeply personal way have said like, yeah, I, it was tense at my house all the time. Yeah, and, and I and I got positive feedback for throwing the ball 60 yards. I got positive feedback. I received love from my parents being fast, the fastest kid on the field. And so I, I totally see that. And I, I would really be interested to know if when you go back, if you're still expected to perform at a high level, if you go back and heal that trauma and you process it and you work through it, do you somehow and lose an edge? That's a good question. As I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking, yes, but. Yes, but, right? Because the diamond becomes a diamond out of dust, out of dirt, under pressure. And we don't grow and we don't evolve unless there is a challenge, there is some right. tension, right? So there's it's almost it's exactly it's comparable like to the homeostatic band that each of us have there's an upper and a lower and we sort of cycle through this i think that it's the same sort of i think it's this it's analogous to what produces superior performance i don't think a life of ease and absolute unconditional positive feedback produces stellar performance. I think there has to be some rough roughness somewhere in there. I'm not saying psychological abuse, but I, but yeah, there's gotta be like in the, you know, I'm looking at the list that I wrote for myself that's sitting on my wall in front of me at work. It's Amy Chua's three characteristics of, um, high achievers um, in uh, uh, subcultures of the United States, superior, insecure, disciplined, right? There's gotta be some sort of tension. Okay, so if you work out your shit with mom and dad in therapy with EMDR, yeah, you're gonna continue being who you are, but you will feel more expansive. You might just feel like your friend Pat who then moves on to something else and uses his experience, his magic, his gifts, his understanding, just um, directs his energies differently. Right. You become more involved. Right. You like, you don't rewrite the childhood narrative. And I actually do think that there should be some struggle. I do think that we should frown at our kids once in a while and to say, I know that's yes, not your I best. Agree. You're loved. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're loved, but, also know and I know that that's not your best what so then you right you start the processing 
so that you don't inculcate the trauma. Oh my God, that's not my best. Like what happened? Like you unpack the story. And so you're connecting when, when you do that processing with your kid around the, I know that's not your best. You're, you're like orchestrating the neuronal circuitry beautifully between limbic system and cerebral cortex. You're going to analysis and you're connecting with feelings. However, there should still be that toughness of a certain standard because this is how we develop, right? The the bar keeps moving. You've reached this. Okay, we're going to move it again because this is how you grow. And what do we want? What we're talking about, Sean, is human potential, achieving the maximum human potential and closing the gap between, right? Actual yeah. and potential. Yeah. And, and we should all, it, it, um, that's not a very PC position these days. It, it, unfortunately, <laughs> I, my recourse to that is I wasn't born in this country. I was raised like I'm a very like kick your ass kind of a culture. And so this is how my people do it. This is how I was taught. It kind of yeah, produces it does. results. It, it, you know, we're both parents. We both have children. We both want our children to thrive and to grow and to be challenged. And there, I mean, this gets into the, you know, eighth place trophy uh, phenomenon where you, you get, you know, you get a medal for, for participating. And, you know, as a progressive thinker, as I believe myself to be, I think that's, a, I think that's terrible. I, yeah, it's just not the way the world works. And you, you don't, you don't, you don't get rewarded for showing up. You have to, you have to put in work and not everybody can win. There are winners and there are losers and it happens. And, and that there's not, there's, there's no getting around that. You know, for to be a mother of a gifted um, hockey goalie, especially hockey, where the the ecosystem, uh, and, and and I don't know if you read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Uh, he talks a lot yep. about hockey and, and what it takes to be a hockey star, and some of it it's like yeah, most hockey stars are born in like. Um, March, April, and May or something like that. And it's an age and it's, you know, commitment to go to ice time, to show up, to be at the ice. Like you are making a massive, massive time investment, financial investment for the gear and all that stuff. And so you're committed to this performance. You're committed to this, to, to this excellence of, of playing ice hockey. Do you, you know, I'm curious, how do you, uh, toe the line between being encouraging and expecting the best out of your son and and maybe crossing into an area where you're just you know all over him and he's and he's freaking out i mean because I, I think about it a lot my son's five and he just started wrestling um i wrestled as a kid and he just started wrestling and he's, you know, he's 10 wrestling practices in and I'm seeing him, I'm seeing his brain go, I could quit right now, but then he doesn't. And then he gets his, ah, he gets choked and he's, his back is on the mat and he's frustrated and crying. And then he walks over and I say, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> and he goes, it's so hard. I said, it's, it's, that's part of this. You, it's, it's okay that it's hard. And and I'm looking at, the, I'm looking at the the mother next to me, and she's like, "That's such a simple message you just gave him." <laughs> and I go, "I don't think you need to say much more. It's hard. You're here. It's it's what we're doing. It's hard. Continue, son. Please continue. You know, <laughs> like, 
right. It's hard, it's isn't beautiful. it, buddy? Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's like, okay, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so how do you yeah. handle it? How, yeah. how, how do you think of it? I, I, I love what you just said because what I'm thinking is we're training them yeah. for life, which I think also is not a PC American thing to say. Right. Life is hard. Okay, life is beautiful. And it might just be that part of what makes it beautiful is overcoming those hard times, those hard things. Going back to the, you know, you get a trophy for eighth place, you get a medal for showing up. The reason why that's bullshit is because there is no such thing as failure in trying. You, you put in the hard work, you use all of your training, you center yourself and you stay present for your teammates or for your activity because everybody else has invested in you. You've already put in a lot of effort. If you lose, that's something to be worked through. And to understand, it it humanizes you. It adds depth. It yeah. humbles you. You learn from it, right? You can't be a 20-year-old and not have physical or emotional scars. If you don't, then it means that you've been cocooned and you've gotten a medal for showing up over and over and over again. Somebody in a, you know, somebody who ended up going to an Ivy League but never finishing wrote a book on how to make kids tough. How do kids become tough? And he looked at two different populations. He looked at um, uh, prep school kids on the East Coast and he looked at uh, inner city kids also on the East Coast. The prep school kids failed in life after they graduated high school because mommy and daddy weren't at college. Yeah, the long arm of mommy and daddy can still go, but they failed at life because they were rescued from failure. The inner city kids who were selected to have an after-school chess club, they were so socioeconomically disadvantaged, but they learned. They learned. They surpassed in life hmm. the prep school kids with all hmm. of the advantages because they knew what it was like to be tough and to yeah. struggle and to overcome. Yeah. So as a parent, where's that line? You're right, because I'm not just the usual parent. I, um, you know, and I don't know if I, if I say that, I don't know. I say that with such mixed feelings, Sean, honestly, right? Because we so deeply love our kids and we don't want to wound them, but we also don't want to handicap them. And I am so aware that I'm so human, but I'm also a very tough parent to have. <laughs> I'm a tough therapist. I love telling the truth. I think kids, should, I think I think kids are more ready for the truth and I think yes. kids recognize when an adult is telling them the truth versus when an adult is mincing words and safeguarding them from some, God forbid, bad feelings. We should help our kids understand that bad feelings are human. And here's why we feel bad feelings, because we do something bad or we think something that's useless, not useful, right? It's not bad or good. It's useless, useful. But, you know, I mean, he's really sensitive. He's he's really sensitive. So I know yeah. that he's already hard on himself. Um, but he can read he can read like the displeasure on my face with his performance. Yeah. You know your kid. You know when your kid doesn't show up at yeah. his best. 
us facilitate the process of understanding. I, I think that what you said about being truthful to children is really important because they intuit so much and they understand facial expressions and body language better than a lot of adults I know that don't pick up the verbal cues that aren't picking up on the fact that this person is done talking to you. Um, but a child gets it and they, 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 you can see it on their faces usually when they've got it figured out. And then to, to pad, you have to be tactful and, and, and you have to be, you have to be appropriate, but to, to sugarcoat or pad or or talk around an issue or or say no everything's fine everything's fine to a child is so disheartening because they know it's not and it's insulting to their little right. developing brains and personalities to say no er, don't worry about it everything's fine and it's exhausting because as parents we have to just constantly be explaining ourselves and 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 explaining the logic of why we're doing this and how we're doing this but th- you owe it to your children you owe it to kids and to other adults for that for that matter to just be truthful and honest and give them give them what's really going on so because anything short shortness of that is doing them a disservice it's disrespectful in my mind I ask you, if we have this respect for for the people that we work with, why would we not have the same respect for our children who we are growing as as future human beings? If it's not a good job, why would you say that? Not everybody does a good job. And the ones who do, they don't do it all the time, right? Which is what makes us human. It's just an honest appraisal. Huh, that wasn't your best, huh? That's all right. Let's just let's just keep going and then you circle back, right? So it's what you said, it's tactfulness, it's appropriateness, yeah. it's timing, right? It's like it's like this like, you know, cosmic like biochemical alignment with your kid, with a person that you really are in sync with. How to say, how to tell that truth? so that they don't collapse, but so that it's inspirational and it gives them pause to go, huh, okay, all right, somebody else sees it. So my reality has been validated. I'm not distort reality. The cultural climate lends itself away from that. It doesn't support that level of honesty and upfrontedness because when you can, yeah. when you hear, and this goes to, even just for people, not just kids. When you hear people speaking the truth and calling it like it is, and this is not like, well, I know best, and I, you know, y'all are dummies, and I know the. It's not that. It's like being truthful and up and upfront with people um, is is almost is almost like um, it's not the norm anymore, and, and people are expected to be coddled and cared to, and that's not what. That's not what we all need. We we need we all need to be able to be um, what you said about not everybody does a good job. So saying good job when it wasn't a good job is just is it's it's not helpful. It doesn't it's like you know mean? like and and that's like being it's like being a fake friend. You know like we're friends and and then I, but I don't really like you and then I talk shit when you leave. But we still like hang out and it's cool. Like we're still, it's like that, that's a meaningless relationship. 
and and that that sort of um, fakery and frontery is I think I think really common. We're we're going on this beautiful tangent. <laughs> We've gotten a bit away from performance. Our listeners are are people who like doing good work, and and I've said that on this podcast before. If you're listening right now, this it's very likely that doing a good job is important to you, no matter no matter what you're doing. Um, and I'm reminded of this over and over and over. For people who are doing a pretty good job, who are professionally pretty successful, they've got their lives pretty well organized, they're pretty happy, um, there's some work that they could probably do um, with someone like you. How can, how can um, psychotherapy, and, and maybe even more specifically EMDR, how can someone go from pretty good to great? It's, it's a process. Um, I think it's a, it's a process on several levels. Um, uh, cognitive, so the idea of self, self-identity, the self as performer, the self as human, um, the emotions, the emotions would need to shift um, to go to great. And the actions for sure. Here's I'm going to give you an example. Um, either with therapy or performance, a lot of people approach me, understandably so, with this really palpable pressure, this very felt sense of anxiety. I want to get this fixed, and I want to get it fixed now, and I want you to help me. I want you to do that thing or I want you to do I want you to do something to make me be better so that I can. So I'm going to do the work that's going to make them be really good at this thing eventually. That's not how great happens. Great is like a revolution of everything that you have had or done or believed so far, starting with letting go of the outcome goal. I want this so that I can have this. Okay, you need to let go of that. Because I understand you could have it as an idea. Gee, it would be nice too. But if this is what you're working towards, um, I really doubt that you're going to get there if this is what's motivating you. Versus I want to I want to be better. I want to I want to be skilled. I want to feel the synergy of everything that I've learned, everything that I think that I feel and I want to eventually see that performance in myself. That's a different ask. Mm-hmm. Right? Because those are process goals. That involves the human, that involves my past. It is not a negation of self. It's almost like somebody who comes with so much pressure, wanting so much to be here. It's like they're asking, I wanna be somebody else. And I'm gonna say, yeah, well, you can't. You have to deal with who you are now and love that person. And only when that happens, which takes time, um, do you have the potential to go to, to a different level to a different feeling place. Um, so it's, it's interesting because even performance work, obviously I, I, I use, you know, counseling skills to like, you know, this to extract, to get at the information. What's this person's identity? 
Who do they want to be? What's their vision? Why do they want to do that? Like what motivates them to go there? So there's a lot of background psychodynamic stuff, even with um, performance mental skills, self-identity, who supports you? Um, what is your belief in your potential? Um, how do you understand yourself as a full human being, not just a performing human being? Hmm. What are the things that are important to you? Why do you do what you do? Why the reason for this purpose? Right. Um, and then, and then if, if it's performance work, then we look a lot at, um, the feelings and the cognitions. So the feelings usually are, um, anxiety, fear, not so much depression, but anxiety and fear. And so there, there's skills training for that. Right. And there's also a lot of dialoguing. What is the anxiety around? Is it around a particular performance? Is it around me as a performer? Is it historical anxiety? So then does that, the, does this become a client that also needs therapy in addition to performance work? Does, does the fear that you do, does the work that you do around fear often go to the tune of, uh, going there, feeling that fear, understanding that fear, feel, feeling it in your body, characterizing your, your reaction to it, and then reframing it into something else? I think you're dancing around something that's really inarticulatable. I mean, we all know how we feel when we're afraid. But then what do you do with that? Is that is right? 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 What is a feeling? Is it is it something that is just felt? Well, how do you feel it? Do you feel it in your body? Do you feel it in your thoughts? Yeah, kind of kind of feel it all over the place. Right? So to parse it, and to say, Well, what do you do with it? Well, first you validate it, then you analyze it. Is it historical or is it discrete and specific? Um, what's the degree of the fear? Is it impacting other life functioning? Right? So is it because of an injury? Is it because of a poor performance on stage yesterday? And now every time you think of stage or you see a stage, you're triggered. Okay, so even that very specific fear might have historical family of origin roots that are linked mm. to performance. So you go at it in different ways, right? Yeah. You go at it in different ways. You have to. Yeah. I, mean, I know that you look at nutrition. I do too. I know that you look at sleep. You have to. When you're talking yeah. about optimal performance, you have to go full circle. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, yes, absolutely. You have, you have to look at the whole picture and, and everybody, just like everybody is different. Everybody's fear is different and they're associated with it differently. And they're either really clear about it or had no idea that was, that was what's going on. So I imagine in a case by case basis, it's a process and that's why it takes such a while to to process through this stuff because it can't happen in two hours it can't happen in 
20 hours. I mean, it has to take, it has to take a long time and you have to be, you've got to be dialed. You've got to work with someone really great like yourself that can help navigate that complex mental place to help people be their best. And you, I, I'm with you, uh, Carmen. I think that go that that performance. I mean, duh. The I mean, the the podcast is called the Optimal Performance Podcast. Cle- clearly, I'm 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 a fan of it and 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 see the longevity of it. But I, but there are there are some there are some inroads, and you see it in sports. You see it in the way that the Seahawks um, uh, approach performance. You see it in. Um, startups using innovative techniques to work remotely or to collaborate in new ways. You see it in uh, Silicon Valley, people microdosing psilocybin and LSD to try to get that edge, to try to up-level in any which way they can to, to modify their approach to the world. And it's really exciting because I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by it, excited by it. It's a, it's a great it's a great line of work to be in. Yeah. It's fun, isn't it? It is. It's totally fun. It's totally fun. It's play. Yeah. It is. Play. You're solving a puzzle and you're really working with some awesome human capital, right? And how beautiful when you see that growth, that understanding turning the corner. How beautiful that you and I are there. I mean, that is such a privilege. It is. I love it. I love it. It's so exciting. So before we before we wrap this thing up, um, I, I like to ask the same question, which is really a fill in the blank. So if you would fill in the blank, everyone would benefit from knowing what self care means. Starting with developing a fairly rigorous and consistent relaxation practice everyone would benefit from relaxation. And whether it's a therapy client or a performance enhancement client, I always start with relaxation. Because you need to cultivate that calm state of mind where you can process information. That's when you show up at your best. Carmen, thank you so much for being our guest on the Optimal Performance Podcast. So my pleasure. Totally my pleasure. We should continue for two more hours.